and welcome to Melting Pot Stories, the podcast that is a literary love fest for multicultural books. I'm your host for the show, Lori L. Tharps. I'm a writer, an author of both fiction and nonfiction, a fan of all things multicultural, and I love books. On this podcast, you'll hear inspiring conversations about the stories behind our favorite diverse books and the latest news and reviews from the publishing world. Come on and join me. I promise this podcast will leave you lit. On episode 65 of the podcast, I'm joined by children's book author, educator, and activist, Joanna Ho. Joanna is the New York Times bestselling author of Eyes That Kiss in the Corners, a beautiful picture book that tells the story of a little Asian girl who learns to love and appreciate the shape of her eyes. Joanna holds a BA in psychology from the University of Pennsylvania and a master's from the Principal Leadership Institute at Berkeley. She has been an English teacher, a dean, the designer of an alternative to prison program, and a professional development mastermind. She is currently the vice principal of a high school in the Bay Area. During our conversation, which felt like a chat with an old friend, Joanna shares how writing for young people is part of her anti-racism activism. We also talk about why it makes her sad that so many Asian women love her book, how she reacted when her first attempts at writing picture books were rejected, and why she's not interested in leaving her day job to pursue writing full-time, despite the fact that she has three other books already in the works. I am sure you guys are going to love this inspiring and spirited conversation. But before we get to it, let's take a melting pot minute to talk about witches. Hello, book lovers. You heard me right. I want to talk about witches during this melting pot minute. And the reason I want to talk about witches is because I read this amazing book at the end of 2020 called The Once in Future Witches by Alex R. Harrow. You guys, this book is so good. I posted about it on Instagram, not once, but twice. I've convinced my mother's book club down in Florida to select it for their next read just so I could join in the conversation because I want No, it's not even want. I need to talk to somebody else about this story. It really blew my mind, and I just can't stop thinking about this book. Here's a quick summary of the book from the publisher, Hachette Publications. Here it goes. Quote, in 1893, there's no such thing as witches. There used to be in the wild, dark days before the burnings began, but now— Witching is nothing but tidy charms and nursery rhymes. If the modern woman wants any measure of power, she must find it at the ballot box. But when the Eastwood sisters, James Juniper, Agnes Amaranth, and Beatrice Belladonna, join the suffragettes of New Salem, they begin to pursue the forgotten words and ways that might turn the women's movement into the witches' movement. Stalked by shadows and sickness, hunted by forces who will not suffer a witch to vote, perhaps not even to live, the sisters will need to delve into their oldest magics, draw new alliances, and heal the bond between them if they want to survive, unquote. So that's the tidy little summary of the book, but there's so much more going on in the pages of this story, including a tangent about African-American witches, an unexpected interracial romance, and just the entire like undercurrent of feminism and female empowerment. And it's all wrapped up in witchcraft. So 
I was so just enthused and curious about this idea of American witchcraft. It made me have so many thoughts because even though this book is fiction, so many of the touch points in the book are actual historical facts and historical events, which made me wonder, you know, how much of these stories about witches and the persecution of women and witches, not to mention the threat about African-American witches, like I wanted to know how much of that was true, which led me down a rabbit hole of trying to find out more about the history of witchcraft in the United States, which led me to find da, 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 a book about multicultural witches and witchcraft in the United States. And you guys are in for a treat. The author of that new book about multicultural witches will be here on the show next week. Yes, yes. How exciting is that? We are going to be dedicating an entire episode on the concept of multicultural witches and their history in the United States. Or I should say the multicultural uh, roots of witchcraft in the United States. So get ready for that show next week. And maybe you want to read The Once and Future Witches in preparation for that conversation. Anyway, I'm going to get off that whole tangent and we are not here this week to talk about witches. It's happening next week. So let's get back to our conversation about children's literature with Joanna Ho. But if you do have something you want to tell me about books about witches, particularly multicultural witches, you know, witches who are not necessarily the white witches that we've always heard about in the Salem Witch Trials, leave me a message. Tell me what these books are that I should be reading. You can leave me a comment on the website, on the show notes page for this episode at myamericanmeltingpot.com. Now, let's get to this conversation with Joanna Ho. Welcome to Melting Pot Stories, Joanna Ho. Thanks so much for um, inviting me. I'm so happy to be here. Well, I'm really glad you're here. And I like to start out asking all of my guests, what are you reading right now? I am kind of in between books. I have a huge TBR shelf next to my bed, but I just finished Punching the Air by E.B. Zaboy and Dr. Youssef Salam. It was so good. I finished it in like two hours. Oh, wow. I just flew through the whole thing. It was really good. Now, Evie is one of my favorite authors. Can you tell our audience a little bit about Punching the Air? Because that's like something a little different, isn't it? Yeah, it's so good. So it's a novel written in verse. And the story behind the story is almost as fascinating as the story itself. So Dr. Youssef Salam is one of the members of the Exonerated Five. When he was, I think, 14, maybe 15, he was accused in the Central Park jogger case of attempted murder and rape. And he and the four other boys who were also accused, I think three were black and two were also of color. They were all convicted and imprisoned and they were all completely innocent, totally innocent. They were not part of that crime at all. And so the book is not based on his story, but it's inspired by his story. It's the story of a young man named Amal who is similarly accused of a crime he didn't commit. And it's sort of just this like searing indictment of the injustice system in our country, of the racism in education, of gentrification. But it's written so beautifully and intentionally to also have hope. 
And the story of Evie, sorry, I'm just going because the story is so beautiful to me. But Evie and Dr. Salam actually met when Evie was in college and she was in journalism. She was like a part of the journalism program. And he was just two years out of prison and not yet exonerated. And then they met again when she was touring for her debut novel, American Street. And a few days after they were reconnected, she emailed and was like, let's do this book. And they did. And it's amazing. That's so great. I I have not read it yet, but I read a lot about it. And now I think it's got to go in my to-be-read pile, which is also very, very large. (laughs) So it's kind of funny that you started with that. I mean, I'm not actually surprised what I know about you, that that is a book that you have recently read. So this podcast actually now is really about uh, multicultural books and the people that love them. But previously, my podcast was really about being an anti-racist and about diversity and multicultural issues. And interestingly, I actually started following you on Instagram because of your anti-racism kind of platform. And then when I started paying more attention to bookstagrammers and, you know, book people on Instagram. I was like, oh, wait, Joanna's also a writer. I didn't even, I didn't connect you. And I was like, oh, she wrote this awesome book I keep hearing about, Eyes That Kiss in the Corner. So before we get into your book, can you tell me and our audience a little bit about your like professional career? Because I know now you're a vice principal, but I know you've done a lot of really interesting work. Tell us a little bit about what you were planning on being, your kind of like education to work experience. So I think that, I, you know, if we're talking the whole spectrum, I've always been very passionate about issues of inequity and social justice, specifically, I think, focused around anti-racist work. And I had this huge epiphany. I thought I was going to be a doctor, and then I thought I was going to be a lawyer. And then I somebody told me, people who go to law school are people who don't know what they want to do in life. <laughs> And I was like, oh, I thought I was going to be a human rights lawyer, you know? And he was like, that's not really a field right now. And that was, you know, a long time ago. But I had this like really powerful kind of spiritual experience that was sort of like, you've always loved working in schools. The education system in this country is so messed up. And so I really became an educator to try to, I think, disrupt the system of inequity. I think I went in really wide-eyed thinking education's the solution to everything, I don't necessarily think that anymore. As a side note, I just finished reading Dr. Bettina Love's book. And she essentially calls out educators who start out like myself thinking you're going to go in and become an educator and change the world. But really, the whole education system is just another part of this the system of impression and like white supremacy that pervades our whole country. And it's set up and it's working exactly as it was set up to do. So that's sort of what I've realized now. But um, I went in thinking this was going to be the solution. And I love being an educator. I was an English teacher. I was the dean of students. I do a lot of restorative justice work in schools. And then because of that restorative justice work, I actually started doing some work to reimagine the justice system. So for a couple of years, I worked on designing this holistic residential alternative to prison program. And that program sadly no longer exists. There's just so many, you know, you're coming up on barriers of the justice system plus education system, plus nobody wants a program like that in their backyard. So it's just sad. I, you know, I have a lot of hope for things like that. 
But I now I work um, again as the vice principal at a high school in the Bay Area. My path into education, I think, is very related to why I became a writer. Like, I think I have this umbrella of the thing that moves me, which is a lot about anti-racism and just like fighting for justice and liberation. And there's a lot of different ways that that fight can look. That makes so much sense. And interestingly, I majored in education as an undergraduate, and I also was like going to change the world by getting into the education system. I wrote my thesis on vocational education because I thought that was something that we we just didn't get right, right? Like making it seem like this second class, second tier leveling of of education. And it was so wrong and such a missed opportunity amongst other things. But I was going to start as a teacher, work my way up to secretary of education and just fix it all. That was my plan. And then I became a writer. So (laughs) instead, so I feel you, I hear you. So then tell us then how the path shifted because, and I want to preface this also with, again, I was like, oh, wow, Joanna wrote this beautiful picture book called Eyes That Kiss in the Corners. And I was like, oh my God, I want to read about it. I want to talk about it. I want her on the show. And then in the like two and a half weeks that I had Joanna booked for this show, I'm like, oh, Joanna has 17,000 other books that are also coming out within like the next, you know, week. No, Um, but you do have a lot of other books. So I don't want to, when I ask you, you know, what actually inspired the writing, it's not just the one book, you have multiple books and we're going to get into a little bit more about the book specifically, but tell us a little bit more about the path to becoming quote unquote, a writer and an author of not just one book. So I think it kind of just piggybacks off of the previous answer, which is, you know, this passion for fighting inequity of like inclusion in education and literature. You know, I was an English teacher, so I always loved reading, but I think the diversification of my personal path came when I um, had kids. And I know that's probably kind of cliche because that happens to a lot of people, but I was my, when my son, who's now six, he was um, a few months old. I was looking for actually Christmas books for him and I wanted to find Christmas books with kids of color. And I couldn't find any. I found like three and they were old. They're not in print anymore, but I like found a copy somewhere. And again, it was like this other kind of moment that was sort of like, you should become a writer. You love writing. I had like a blog at that point that I had been writing. So I think that sort of wet my chops a little bit in terms of like, oh, I actually really like writing because all through school, I really struggled as a writer. I didn't think about myself as a writer. It's not, I didn't grow up like dreaming about becoming an author, but it was really like, this is another way to add your voice into inclusion and fighting for equity. And this is something that your kids really need. So that's sort of what started me on the path. You know, it also, there was a lot of naivete, I think, and just like, it's really hard to write picture books, but you read them and you're like, oh, anybody could do this. And you realize, just kidding, it's actually super hard. Um, so I would say that's what started me on the path. It was, again, a desire to work for inclusion. You know, I think the publishing industry mirrors all the other industries. There's a lot of gatekeepers. There's a lot of power and privilege and a lot of inequity. So I don't think I'm a like a player at all in this industry, but I want to at least 
be able to throw my voice in and make an impact on young people somehow. That's really great. So, you know, it's funny. I also, when, <laughs> one of the reasons I decided to major in education is because I took a picture book writing class in college and I I don't really remember what I got in it, but I believe I, I tell everybody I got to see. And it was so bad because it was so much harder than I thought. And I was like, I'll never be a writer. So I might as well do something more practical because it is hard to write picture books. Did you actually take any courses or classes or did you just start writing and see what happened? It was a little bit of both. I think I started writing. This is what happened. I started writing and I had a couple manuscripts and I happened, I had like a cousin who knew someone who had started her own private, very small independent publishing company. And so she looked at my stuff and essentially she was like, she was really nice, but she was like, you should learn the craft, (laughs) like take some classes. (laughs) Like, this is not good. (laughs) So I was like, okay, I got you. So I like immediately signed up for an SEBWI conference and then I took an online class and I signed up for a bunch of online classes. My son was less than a year old still. So I was just like doing these things in between and trying to take classes when I could and like learn, learn the act. And I would just read a lot and learn through my reading. I heard a term this morning. I was listening to a writing podcast and I heard this term, a DYI MFA. It sounds like that's what you did. Yes, <laughs> totally. Okay. So I love this book, Eyes That Kiss in the Corners, because it made me think, like, why is this the first book I've ever seen that kind of addresses this in such a positive way? So can you tell me like a little bit about the origin story about the book? Like, what were you, what were you trying to do? I think I was at a a space where I had just started querying and an agent had asked for more things. And then it was just like my dream agent. And at that time I had written a story. I mean, upon reflection, I was writing stories that I thought needed to be in the market. And looking back, they're not stories that I should have been writing. I don't want to say should, but they were not really my stories to be writing and I wasn't doing them well. So I had one story that she liked, she asked for more, and then she didn't end up offering representation. And that sort of sent me into the space of, and I also at that time got some feedback, like, if you haven't been through this experience, you probably can't tell the story right. And that was absolutely spot on. And so I was really like trying to ask myself, like, what are the stories of my heart? What are stories that I can tell or only I can tell? Or what are stories I needed when I was a kid? Forget like what I think needs to be out there, like, So I think I was in a space of really trying to dig deep. And to be honest, like this I story is the first one that came to mind, like just the topic. It was sort of like, what are things that were hard for me as a kid that were impactful? And I grew up watching a lot of Disney movies and reading a lot of books. And everyone who's beautiful has golden hair and blue eyes and, of course, white skin. And Disney princesses are like eyes the size of their face. And I didn't look like that. I still don't look like that. And I used to look in the mirror and I would pull, I mean, I really would. I would like pull my eyelid up and I would try to imagine myself with bigger eyes. And it was like a joke in my family. Like, aha, Joanna wants bigger eyes. So I really didn't realize until this book came out how, you know, eyelid surgery is the most popular surgery in Asia. But you kind of know that intellectually, I didn't realize on a visceral way how many people like internalize the things I internalized as a kid. And so I was trying to write this story. I also um, was pregnant with my daughter and thinking about how I don't want her 
to grow up wishing she looks different. I want her to know she's beautiful (laughs) because she is. So that's really where it came from. I think the way it came out is because I was trying to ask myself like, okay, like how does a young person come to learn that he or she or they are beautiful? And I was thinking about the story arc where like people tell her she's beautiful. And then the reality is, you know, it does not matter how many people tell you you're beautiful. Cause that one comment, that one kid who pulls her eye up or says something about your hair or like whatever, that's the one you remember. And that just made me think about like the systemic reasons we believe these things about beauty. And then like, what are the internal reasons? What does beauty really mean? What do our physical features mean? Where do they come from? And so that's kind of how the story ended up unfolding because I knew it really had to be like an internal change and not something that came from outside. Right. And I just love so many things about that. One, just the like phrase, eyes that kiss in the corners, like it gives children a different way of, you know, because the way we talk about Asian eyes or black hair, it's all in reference to whiteness, right? It's like, well, your eyes are more this as opposed to no, your eyes are just too big and round, you know, like that's just (laughs) that part. We look at it as if we're comparison too, as opposed to just, this is what Asian eyes look like, period. And your story about childhood, I think every Black child or many Black children can relate to the, you know, we used to put towels on our hair and shake them around because we were like, this is what it feels like to have hair that moves, or I want hair that moves. And that constant keening for wanting that thing that is, you know, whiteness that is all around us. So I relate to it. And I think I'm sure many, many people who are not white will relate to that idea of wanting that something and staring in the mirror and figuring out ways to make themselves kind of look more like the Disney princess. Right. And and again, I just love that because you can replace those with the words that, no, your eyes are so beautiful. They kiss in the corners. Like, I find myself even using that phrase. So it's like you've even given new language to it, right? So that everybody can use that. Oh my gosh, look at her beautiful eyes. They kiss in the corners. It's loving. It's, you know, it's beautiful. It's just phenomenal. Like I think that something as simple as a picture book really can do wonders to really make a sea change in the way people talk, the way people conceptualize things. And that's why I feel like it can be so simple. And that's what I want to ask you is like, do you think of your writing as another form of activism in a way? Absolutely. I feel like, for example, if you dig into Isaac Kiss in the Corners, there's the surface level that's like, this is a story of self-acceptance. And then if you really dig in and you want to analyze the language, the first opening page talks about girls who have eyes like sapphire lagoons with flashes like trim on, lace trim on ball gowns. And that's like, for me, a super intentional reference to Disney movies and princesses and like the system that creates this one standard of beauty for all people around a very narrow standard of whiteness. And that's like, was one attempt to sort of start to interrogate that and like the way that it impacts people. And then the, at the end, it talks about like revolution and how she's a warrior and she sees her own kingdoms, which is intentional. Like, I don't want that kingdom. I'm going to create my own. I'm, I'm a revolution. Like, you know, and that's in my mind, if we can recognize that we're beautiful in the face of centuries of oppressive beliefs and really intentionally shared and perpetuated beliefs about beauty 
for reasons of oppressing people like us, if we can learn that we're beautiful in the face of all of that, it really is an internal revolution. And then on top of that, hopefully it's something that can create more change. And so, so yes, to me, like writing is another form of activism. I feel grateful that I have been given the opportunity to share my voice in this other way outside of just, you know, education in schools. I'm wondering what kind of responses have you gotten from the Asian community? Both, I imagine parents are probably connecting with you, but maybe children too. What kind of responses have you gotten so far from the book? Yeah, I've been so grateful and so overwhelmed and surprised, honestly, because I was just like, I really thought like, who's going to read this book? (laughs) I'm just so grateful it's happening. But like, I hope it finds the people who want it. I hope someone knows that it exists. And so... I've been really overwhelmed in such a, like a positive way. And I have gotten, I think the, the ones are that I have loved, well, I love them all, but, um, our, our moms and like women who are like my age or older or just a little bit younger who are like, I'm buying this for me and I don't even have kids or like, I, I needed this and I bought it for my sister and we read it together and like, we don't have kids, but we cried, you know, things like that. And then of course, like people who are sending me pictures of their kids or who are telling me, like, sometimes I'll get messages where kids will see another Asian person and say, look, mom, like her eyes kiss in the corners too. And just knowing that like there are kids who might will internalize that is just, it's a kind of unbelievable and also really amazing. I bet that's one of the positive things about social media or the internet and that people can get in touch with you and you can kind of see for yourself. Now, the book is on the bestseller list, on the New York Times bestseller list. So, I mean, this is not just a few people who are like, thank you for writing this book. Are you surprised by the success? And what does that say to you about the book if it's that much of a commercial success? Yeah, I mean, I was surprised, like super surprised. So, I mean, I don't, obviously have anything to compare it to since it's my first book, but just blown away by the reception. And I think what that says to me is the Asian community is thirsting for representation and to see themselves in literature and in books. I think the one thing that makes me uncomfortable is when people say I've never seen myself in a book. And the reason it makes me uncomfortable is because there are actually so many incredible Asian authors and illustrators. And there are so many books written by Asian creators that are out there. They just, people don't always know about them because mine certainly isn't the first. So what it also says to me, one is people are craving representation. People need ways to know the representation that is there. And also that eyes as like a touch point really hits a nerve for the community. And that in a way was really, um, not affirming it's, you know, and affirming in the like, Oh, I wasn't the only one kind of way, but also just so heartbreaking to know like people around the world are like this resonated with me so deeply because I've hated myself so much for so long is also it's sad and then hopeful to know, like we can change that narrative. Yeah. And you bring up my next question. Um, it's this idea that there does seem to be a lack of, I mean, I mean, seem to be, this is what I teach. So I know there's an extreme lack of Asian representation in popular culture, right? In our books, in our movies, in our news. Like, it's not there until it's there. And right now we're seeing 
Asian representation in the media because of the increased violence against Asian Americans around COVID. And it is, I can't say the word shocking because this is the work I do. So like nothing that is racist is shocking to me. Um, But at the same time, it just seems like what you just said, where you see this incredible support and love for your book, it just shows that there's such a craving and a need to see ourselves, to see Asian people particularly represented. So how does that lead to your next books? Like, I know you're doing a book about Yo-Yo Ma, but not like a biography of Yo-Yo Ma. It's particularly about his work at the border. Can you tell us a little bit about, so like what's next and how do your next books fit into this idea of providing different Asian American stories for your audience? Yeah, I love the story of Yo-Yo Ma. I think um, essentially it's representation. So like, we don't know enough about activists or Asian and anyone, frankly, in history, we don't learn about it at school. So the story of Yo-Yo Ma, it was, he went and played at the border as part of this larger project he was doing, but it was very much to send a message, sort of like at the peak of separating children at the border, which side note is still happening, side note is not over, side note they're not all reunited, you know, but I just felt it so deeply, I'm the daughter of immigrants, but the separating at the border story. I didn't know how to tell that story because in a lot of ways, there are a lot of more qualified people to tell that story. And when he played at the border, for me, it was sort of like, okay, like my mom used to play Yo-Yo Ma's Bach cello suites on Saturday morning to get my brother and I out of bed when we were sleeping in too late. And we'd always be like, Ma, turn it off. And she never did. And so I actually grew up loving Yo-Yo Ma. I hated it. And then I loved it. And so when I play it, it reminds me of her. So I feel like a connection to him. And he is such an insanely amazing human being who does all this humanitarian and social justice work around the world. And so that's sort of The story itself is more about like that moment in time, the border, his cello, the music, and then him and the ways that all of those things cross borders and build bridges instead of walls. So that's sort of the next one. But I think that all the books, I have a young adult novel coming out next year, and that's about an Asian girl in a community much like the one I grew up in, in the Bay Area. And her older brother dies by suicide. And then the community turns against her with a lot of anti-Asian racism, saying like the Asians came and they changed the culture and they're the reasons everyone's so stressed. And it's basically her parents' fault, like for causing his suicide. And so it's really her story of, of healing, but also finding her voice. I think my problem is actually that I don't know how to write a story that doesn't have these like underlying themes. I tried to write a funny story and my agent was like, uh, this is funny, but you know, it should be really, really funny in order to stand out. (laughs) And I was like, okay, I get it. (laughs) I'm not funny. That's, you know what? But like, That's okay, because you're kind of funny in this podcast. Like, your affect is quite funny and very pleasant. So don't worry if it's not in your books. So your novel sounds amazing, and it feels very like, ooh, somebody's going to get mad at you. I don't know who's going to get mad at you for telling that story, but I feel like it's going to bring up some, like, somebody's going to get mad at you. But that's okay. That's what books are supposed to do. No, I'm, like, really terrified, actually, because there's also a lot of, like, about like Asian black racism or inner kind of like 
or she has like kind of an awakening about her own like racist problems. And so there's some, her best friend is, is black Haitian. And so I'm just really hope I like get it right. But I also know that there isn't necessarily a right and not everyone's going to see things the same way. YA just feels like a different space. That's a little bit scary to enter. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I I have no, I have no tips, no offerings of like, it's going to be okay, but obviously you're not afraid to tell stories that need to be told. And I think that that's what the landscape needs is like, we don't need another romance about two teenagers. We don't need another like, I don't even know, vampires, werewolves, zombies, whatever. Like, there's so much trending. But then you're like, you still have all these young people who are looking for their stories to be told and to help them make sense of this crazy world we're living in right now. That's why I made my podcast to be all about books, because books can be magical, right? They can change the world. I mean, you know, I bet, well, everybody probably who's listening to this podcast can remember a book that made them think differently about something or made them think they could do something or made them not feel so alone. Books are so powerful. And so I applaud you for taking on these challenging themes and not being too afraid and not trying to go for like the funny or the things you thought you should write about, which, I mean, I think every writer has to go through that process, right? Like maybe I should write about this because this is what everybody wants to hear or, or this seems important, but we really go to our own stories, right? Because that's where we can really put something into it. So I want to go to, this is, I mean, I feel like it's a similar question, but I know that you just, I don't know if it's a new deal or it's part of the other deals, but that there's like a companion book about a boy that's going to, I don't know if it's the same family from Isaac Kiss in the Corner, but it's it's the same idea. Tell us about this new book that has a boy at the center of it that's also going to be a picture book. Yes. So it is a companion book. It's called Eyes That Speak to the Stars. And that really came about, I think, because the reception for the first one was so, and it's been in the works for a while. The illustrations are done at this point, but So my personal story is I was raised by a single mom. I never knew my, her dad because he died when she was young. And my grandma came from Taiwan after my parents got divorced and stayed with us for a little bit. So I just have like this history of very strong women in my life. And I have a young daughter. I also have a son who I adore, of course, but it just felt really natural for me that the girl, she drew her strength from the women in her life. That's been very much my story. And I also, you know, I actually really wrestled with this idea of doing like a quote boy version because I really been trying to push back against boy version and girl book and boy book because I really think they should be for everyone. But I also like looked at my son and felt like, you know, there are strong men. And also it was an opportunity to me to include more of the like bullying aspects of the eyes, which I tried to fit in the first one. It just wouldn't stick in there. It didn't work. So this one talks a little bit more about, um, it's a very similar storyline. It's him and his male family members, which I don't think we see enough of from people of color in general, like strong men, male family relationships. So I was excited to sort of do this and then create representation in a similar but different way. But it's sort of about him recognizing the same things that his eyes have power. Yeah. And you did just mention the illustrations. And I I know there's people who are listening who are aspiring picture book writers. Tell us a little bit about the process of working with an illustrator. I know I'm pretty sure that most of the time 
writers don't get to pick the illustrator or sometimes the illustrator's already selected. How, what was the process like for you in finding the illustrator? Because the illustrations are so gorgeous in Eyes of Kiss in the Corners. What was that process like for you and how much did you get to be involved? She just, my editor was like, this is the illustrator we're looking at. Do you like her art? And I like looked at her Instagram and I was like, yep, <laughs> I love it. It's amazing. And then after that, it just sort of, then I would see a draft And then I saw another draft. It was like a draft of potential character images. And then it was like a a sketch draft of the book. And then it was like a color, more final draft. And every time I was just like, so emotional. I just feel so grateful. Like I really hit the jackpot and she really understood the book and the editors and like the whole team, I feel like worked so beautifully to make that art and the words go together so well. So you have told us your kind of, I don't want to say convoluted, but not exactly direct path to being a writer. So my kind of wrap-up question is, do you now, especially now that you have so many books um, in the works, and I think I read an interview that you gave somewhere where you said you write in the like 5 a.m. when your kids are sleeping before anybody else gets up. Do you now dream of doing writing full-time and maybe stepping away from your vice principal duties? Or is that not something that you aspire to? I think I think about it. But I just think the reality is, you know, I'm also a single mom, I support my kids, and you know, my whole family. And publishing is not, it's not like a steady income. And I also so on one hand, it would be lovely to be able to write. On the other hand, I love the work I do. So I just feel conflicted. I don't think I'm ready to like take that step. I don't know if I ever will be. I certainly think about it, but, um, you know, it's hard to give up on health insurance when you have it. That's just sort of the reality there. And then I also think that there's something to be said about having this thing that's like my passion and my outlet become the way that I have to feed my family. And does, how much does that change what I put into the world when I become like financially dependent on it? And I don't, I don't want that to change. Like I want to be able to write what I really want to write. So I think about it, but I'm not, I'm not convinced yet. <laughs> well, I've, I know from many people and I think it's a popular advice not to make your passion, your paycheck because it changes the nature of it. So good for you. And it's great that you have a career that you actually really like, that you enjoy, that fulfills you as well, as well as gives you a paycheck. I'm just curious if you have any aspirations to write an adult book. Is that something you want? Are you really happy Um, in the children's space? I love youth and children. So I don't currently, I never say never, because I at one point was like, oh, I'm never going to write a novel. And then, well, you know, so I would say, I won't say no, but I am much more interested in exploring other genres in kidlet than I am in trying to write an adult book. And Joanna, tell everybody, what's the next book that's coming out? Again, you've, you've mentioned quite a few that are in the pipeline. What is the next book that we will actually see from you? The next book is coming out in September, and it's Playing at the Border, A Story of Yo-Yo Ma. That is um, the one I talked about earlier. And that will be out, I think, September 28th. And where can people find you, catch up with you? Where do you like to play the most on the internets? You can find me on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, all at Joanna Ho Writes. Also, my website is joannahowrites.com, but I'm most active on Instagram. Great. And I always ask every writer this, what's your advice for managing social media, writing, and a full-time job and kids? 
How do you do the social media part? I've been reflecting on this a lot, actually, the last couple of weeks, particularly after all the anti-Asian stuff trying to really reflect. So I think it's that social media has a lot of potential and power to create community and be a really positive learning space. It certainly has been for me for the most part. It is also not the only way to connect to people and have a voice in the world. And so I think for me, it's about creating boundaries to know that like my real art is in the writing. And I notice that when I'm too active online, my writing suffers. So I think creating boundaries, but not giving up on social media as a space, because I do really believe that there's a lot of positive things that happen as a result of, you know, the community that you can create there. I love that. It's very honest. And there's no one answer. There's good and bad in social media. And I I love to hear how different authors, you know, manage that. Joanna, thank you so much for being with us today and good luck with all of your writing. And I hope everybody is as excited as I am to read about Yo-Yo Ma at the border. Thank you so much for having me. It was so fun chatting. Isn't she awesome? The world needs more people like Joanna Ho, right? She's a dedicated educator. It's so obvious that she really cares about young people and the issues that they're facing. And she's unafraid to challenge unjust systems. And like at the end of the day, she's still smiling. I know you guys couldn't see her face, but I did get to see Joanna during our interview. And she is just lovely and can still smile and be enthusiastic about the work that she is doing in the schools as well as writing and her anti-racism work. I'm really looking forward to reading all of her upcoming books, especially her novel, which sounds so good. And I really hope that you all took inspiration from our conversation and from the work that Joanna is doing. And I hope you might want to buy a copy of her book for yourself or maybe for a school classroom or just maybe for someone you know who might just love it. If you enjoyed today's episode, and I hope you did, and you want to support the podcast, here are a few ways you can do that. One, subscribe, rate, and review the show. Subscribe anywhere you listen to podcasts, but please rate and review on Apple Podcasts. Two, tell somebody about the show, either online or offline, or both. Three, Buy yourself some gorgeous pajamas so you can look classy and feel good when you read in bed like I do. And you can buy your jammies at printfresh.com. At Printfresh, they have stunning cotton PJs with bold, beautiful designs in sizes and shapes for all bodies. They have nightgowns. They have two-piece long pajamas, two-piece short pajamas, everything you want or need to look lovely in bed. And if you use the promo code Lori L. Tharps at checkout, you get 15% off your order and I get a small commission. So use the link in the show notes and you'll end up at the Print Fresh online store and you can pick out some beautiful pajamas and use the promo code Lori L. Tharps for 15% off. And number four, the last but not least way you can support this show is to simply leave a donation via PayPal on the My American Melting Pot blog. Your donation says, I appreciate the information. It says, I appreciate what you're doing. And it just says that you care. And I appreciate anything that you might want to give. 
You can find the PayPal donation button on myamericanmeltingpot.com. Whatever you donate, I appreciate. Thank you. Melting Pot Stories is produced by me, Lori L. Tharps. Our editor and technical director is Brad Linder. Our theme music was composed by Sumi Tanoka. Thank you for listening, Melting Pot community. And until next week, keep reading multicultural books. <laughs>